Hello, welcome to the East London Radio Private Lives podcast. This is Paul Robinson, and on today's show we meet two musicians whose careers collided when one invited the other to join his new band, The Rich Kids, as vocalist. The originator of that phone call was Glenn Matlock, best known as the former writer and guitarist in the Sex Pistols, who called Midge Ewer, who himself achieved success in Visage, Thin Lizzy and Ultravox. Midge produced the number one single by Band-Aid, Do They Know It's Christmas, in aid of famine relief in Ethiopia, and with Bob Geldof was the momentum behind Live Aid. We'll talk to Glenn Matlock about the brouhaha that the controversial Sex Pistols created in the late 70s in the second half of the podcast. But first to Midge Ewer, who told me about his route into the music business. Private Lives with Paul Robinson. I think the idea that uh, anything was possible was kind of there, you know, the infantile uh, naivety of uh, of the the dream of being able to do what you wanted to do, irrespective of whether it was music or, or football or whatever. Um, and maybe that was just driven by the circumstances, you know, born in a tenement slum and, uh, you know, outside toilets and gas mantles and all of that stuff. Um, and maybe it was the desire to kind of move on from that. I don't remember it being that. I just remember having an affinity with music, you know, whatever came out the radio. Uh, it, and it didn't really bother me what it was. Uh, just took me out of the reality that I was in. So the dream was always there. In reality, it, the chances were incredibly slim. Well, you started, though, training as an engineer, didn't you? You went to Motherwell Technical College. I did. I left school at 15 because I, they wouldn't teach me anything I was interested in. <laughs> uh, you know, like most schools, uh, you know, I've never had to use trigonometry ever since leaving school. But Don't think insisted, I have either, no. Right. They, they insisted on teaching it for some reason. Yeah. but and, and also they wouldn't teach me music because I wasn't classically trained. So um, I, I decided that, you know, grammar school uh, just wasn't for me. And I left to become an engineer. My father was a a van driver all his life and he instilled in my brother and I that we should uh, you know we should do better than that and the way to do better than that if you weren't uh, you know academic material was to to become a, a tradesman you know become a mechanic or an engineer or whatever so I I did six months at uh, Motherwell Technical College and then got a job as an apprentice uh, I got an apprenticeship at the National Engineering Laboratories uh, to become an engineer. In East Kilbride I think. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And did you like engineering or was it something that gave you a training and gave you potentially an income just at that particular point in your life? I think it, oh, there was no income, you know, as an apprentice, you know, you got your five pounds a week or whatever it was, which you promptly gave to your mother for your keep. Right. And uh, and you got your pocket money back. So it, it wasn't a financial thing <clears throat> at all. I think it just been drummed in that that was the way to survive. You know, if you're a working class boy, you know, you have a skill at your fingertips and you would, uh, you know, you would survive what was what the world was about to throw at you, you know, having a roof over your head and having, you know, a family and all of that. But I was playing music all the time. I'd been playing in bands since I was like 13 or 14. So my dream was still there. But the reality was this was probably my destiny. So you played in Stumble. I think that was your first band in Glasgow. It was named after a track on uh, John Mills' Blues Breakers album. The stumble was something, it was an instrumental, I think, that uh, Eric Clapton played. So, again, you know, very geeky, very young and naive during the, the, uh, the British blues boom. So, yeah, the stumble it was. And what sort of music were you doing then? Well, you know, I think you, you, you kind of did a bit of everything. Um, you know, you were still learning your trade, so you'd play... 
you know, a couple of free tunes or you play, you know, uh, you know, a, a cream tune or, or whatever, uh, or, a, a, you know, heavy metal rock tune. But we weren't very good because we were all, you know, spotty youths. We were all, you know, 14, 15 and 16. So we were just, that was our musical apprenticeship. We were doing at the same time as I was doing the engineering apprenticeship. But the good thing was you were learning. You were learning and it had to be very diverse. You wouldn't get gigs unless you could play, um, you know, uh, something out of the top 40. So you had to be a bit of a, a human jukebox uh, as well as playing the odd thing that you really wanted to play. So in order to get gigs in front of people where you could uh, learn how to, you know, cut your teeth on on uh, the performance side of things, um, you had to succumb and play everything from, you know, Chicory Tips, Son of My Father to David Bowie's Starman. Both excellent in their own way, of course. Uh, yeah, but, but fairly diverse. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And then 1972, you joined Salvation as a guitarist. I did. I didn't intend to. I was halfway through my engineering apprenticeship. and Salvation were a well-known band in Scotland at the time. They were doing the same Scottish circuit as Teargas, who went on to become the sensational Alex Harvey band. We used to do the same circuit every weekend, doing the, the same old thing. I, I went with a keyboard player who was in Stumble at the time, uh, who we didn't like very much, and we were desperate to get rid of him. And he wanted to audition <laughs> for the keyboard player in uh, Salvation. And we were, I took him to the auditions uh, in the band's van. And, uh, of course, they didn't offer him the job as keyboard player, but they offered me job as guitarist because I stood in on guitar while they auditioned him. So I had a dilemma, you know, do I leave this apprenticeship halfway through and join this fairly well-known band in Scotland at the time, do this full time? Or do I see the, the apprenticeship through for another two years and then never go back? And you decided to stay and obviously be in the band? I did. My yeah. my parents. I gave the. I made my parents decide, uh, which was hideous. I mean, I thought it was the right thing to do at the time, hoping they would uh, choose the right path. And my mother just said, "You've got to follow your heart." And my father just turned green. You know, well, just that's what dads do. But your, your mum, yeah, your mum was with you, which was nice. Pissed. Yeah. Well, actually, you made the right decision, didn't you? Because of course, Kevin McGinley left. You then became the vocalist, and then they became Slick. Yeah, um, we changed the name. Uh, we uh, we cut off all our early seventies long hair, and uh, got to sell some kind of James Dean haircuts. And we were quite a cool little band at the time. We were actually a very good band, Slick. Uh, and then we were offered a, a record deal, uh, which wasn't a great record deal, but it was a brilliant record deal because it was the only one we were ever going to get offered in Scotland at the time. This was pre-independent labels and all of that stuff. So we, we naively took the record deal thinking we'll play some of this nonsense uh, for a bit and then we'll grow into being able to do our own stuff. Of course, that never really happens. You know. But it did go big in a way because in February 1976 you had a number one song. We did, yeah. And it's, it was a weird sensation uh, because, if truth be told, uh, we turned up in London uh, with a, a van full of equipment, a massive you know, five-ton truck full of equipment to make our first record. And uh, we were promptly told that the session guys had been in that morning and recorded it. And all I was, uh, all that was required of me was to go in and sing the thing. So when it got to number one, when I should have been feeling absolutely elated and full of myself, I felt so incredibly removed from the whole process. So I, I found myself miming to a record that I didn't really make uh, on Top of the Pops. East London Radio on Podcast Radio. 
This is Private Lives. I'm Paul Robinson and Midge Ewer is my guest. So Midge, I think Slick used some of the same writers as the Bay City Rollers. It was the same team, yeah. Um, it's kind of no different from now, you know, except that you'd be going to Sweden, I suppose, now to, to get a songwriting production team. Uh, so back then, the, the guys who were, were doing this, you know, Mickey Most and uh, Chin and Chapman and Bill Martin and Phil Coulter, who wrote and produced all the Bay City Rollers hits and same for Kenny and a few other bands. It was an oddity because it was kind of, uh, sound-alikes, you know, the Slick record sounded exactly like a Bay City Rollers record, which sounded exactly like a Kenny record. Um, and and we we ended up, you know, after about a year of, of having this number one record and making an album, which they eventually let us play on, and living out this this kind of bizarre charade, um, we had enough. Uh, they, get, they presented us with a, uh, a new song called The Kids Are Punk, because they were influenced by the new wave explosion <laughs> that had just happened. And we just said, no, it's just straw that broke the camel's back. And we, we broke the contract and split up. So you split up in 1977. But is it true then that you, at this time, or around about this time, you were offered the chance to go and play with the Sex Pistols? Yeah, around 76, maybe early 76, I was stopped in the streets of Glasgow uh, by uh, an English guy who, who transpired uh, was Bernie Rhodes, who went on to manage The Clash. And he asked me to speak to his friend around the corner about some equipment. And his friend around the corner, sitting in the car, was Malcolm McLaren, who proceeded to tell me about his background and you know, the shops that he, you know, the shop that he had in London, and uh, Vivian Westwood, and of course, none of this meant anything to me at all. And uh, and then he said, "I'm putting this new band together. Uh, do you want to join?" And I said, "Well, you don't even know what I do. You stop me because of how I look rather than than what I can do." Mm. So I turned it down. They were actually upselling some fairly hot equipment in the boot of the car, so I. I I turned down the Sex Pistols, but I bought an amplifier. <laughs> oh, well, it was a good deal then. That was, that was probably was the right a, decision. Listen, it was great. I, I loved it. It was fantastic. Podcast Radio. But you did actually then later join former Sex Pistol Glenn Matlock. And, of course, you were part of the Rich Kids. I was, yes. Um, when Slick uh, you know, was on its, its dying throes, I got a phone call out the blue from Glenn Matlock. Uh, who I'd never met, but I knew obviously who he was through reading the uh, music magazines. And um, he said his new band, uh, you know, the, the Rich Kids, and he was looking for a front person, a singer, a guitarist, uh, you know, uh, and a journalist, uh, a melody maker journalist by the name of Caroline Kuhn uh, uh, had seen Slick play live and said, "He's the, this, this guy, Midge, is the guy for your band. So Glenn took a huge chance on uh, on inviting me down to London to come and, and join the band. Um, and, and in a way, I suppose he made his journey 20 times more difficult because I was incredibly uncool at that point. All the kids who had been into the rollers and slick and all of that had grown up and were now punks. And I was just, uh, I was I was bad news. But it, I joined the band. He, he took me on, and it was it was a a, a whirlwind uh, journey for me. It was it was quite incredible. as baptism by fire. Uh, all of a sudden, finding myself in you know in a warehouse party with the Clash and Susie and the Banshees and Billy Idol, and it was just ridiculous. It was mad. Did you like that London scene you were now part of? I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I mean, it was petrifying. You know, I was a kid who had never really 
you know, crossed the border from Scotland to England, uh, let alone, you know, being thrust into the, the middle of this this very, very, very vibrant, you know, quasi-violent scene. Um, but it was it was incredibly exciting. You wanted, I think, to introduce synth into the band, but that wasn't a view that was shared by some of your fellow bandmates. No, not all of them. No, they didn't. They didn't. Uh, they didn't warrant it too well. Um, you know. Uh, you know. When I joined the band, uh, you know, went down in '77, so '78. Things were moving on. You were now in the third, fourth generation punk bands coming through. It was now high street fashion. The kids who started the whole. The whole scene, uh, the whole kind of new wave scene, whether the kind of Bromley contingent, and they had moved on. They didn't want to be part of something that was now high street fashion, uh, and they they kind of created this whole uh, blitz kids look. Uh, these kids wanted somewhere to go, and uh, and the little clubs that I used to go and hang out in in the evening, you know, Billy's or, or Blitz, uh, the forerunner to Blitz actually, um, used to play Bowie songs and Roxy music and craft work and stuff out of Europe that you'd never heard of. Mm. And I got really into this, uh, you know, with my old friend Rusty Egan, who was the drummer in the Rich Kids. I bought a synthesizer and brought it into the Rich Kids with the idea that I could incorporate this new technology with traditional rock instruments. And it wasn't to be. Half the band hated it and half the band loved it. Rusty and I took the synthesizer away after the Rich Kids split and we put Visage together. With Steve Strange as vocalist. With Steve Strange, Rusty's pal Steve Strange as vocalist. And the whole idea of doing that was that we could get to work with our favourite musicians who happened to be half of the band magazine and Billy Curry from the band Ultravox. And this worked. And in fact, your second single was a big hit. It was, yeah. And it wasn't really designed to be a big hit, I have to say. You know, we wanted to make electronic European dance music for the clubs that Rusty was running along with Steve. And we found ourselves with a massive, you know, international global uh, hit with Fade to Grey. So you're in Visage, you're doing what you want to do now, you're playing the electronic instruments, you've got a hit record. This must have been good times then, Midge. It was great, uh, I have to say. I mean, it was incredibly vibrant, uh, the whole period. I mean, the Visage project, uh, which is precisely what it was, it wasn't a band, um, took over a year uh, to make the record simply because the logistics of trying to get all the uh, members of this this uh, community together in the same room at the same time was impossible because magazine was still touring, Ultravox was still touring, and the dying throes of the rich kids were kind of still doing the odd gig here and there. So it was very difficult. So over a period of a year, uh, we managed to complete the album uh, during that year, uh, Ultravox had been on tour in America and come back a broken band uh, to find that uh, they had been uh, the recording contract had been dropped in the UK. Uh, the singer and guitarist uh, disappeared, and it just left the nucleus of the band. And I loved uh, what Ultravox were doing on the the last album, Sister of Romance. And uh, it was Rusty who suggested to Billy Curry that. I was the perfect guy to join the band. So before we get to Ultravox, let's talk about Thin Lizzy because you also you knew Phil Linnett. I did. Phil was a. I was a, a huge early Thin Lizzy fan. I I as a as a very sporty youth, I used to go to a little club in Glasgow uh, called the Picasso Club, and all the rock bands, all the new rock bands, would come up there and play, and I would sneak in and and sit and watch what went on and try and learn how it all worked. And uh, one of the bands I saw there was a band called Skid Row, 
a three-piece band from Ireland with a very young Gary Moore playing guitar. Right. And then I read about this other band uh, that were associated with Skid Row, and that was Thin Lizzy. So I went to see Thin Lizzy playing in this tiny little club and completely fell in love with what they were doing. Philip was such a a great, he was a folk singer. He was, he was a folk singer with rock instruments. He wrote these beautifully poignant, haunting, atmospheric tunes. And, uh, and I got to know him. Uh, I met him in Glasgow a couple of years later. And when I moved uh, to London to join the Rich Kids, I bumped into him in the underground again. And we used to hang out. So we were, we were friends. And did Phil influence you at all in terms of your vocal style? Because he, you know, like you, was a very charismatic singer. I had never thought about vocal styles until he mentioned it. Uh, he was talking about microphones and which microphones suit his voice best. And he said, because I've got a very distinctive style of singing and I need a specific microphone to kind of get that. And he said, what do you use? And I'd never thought about it. I just said, whatever they put in front of me. Yeah. I didn't know that I had a specific style. So it was him who made me aware that when I sing, I sing like nobody else uh, around because it's me. It's, uh, and it's probably a combination of what I've heard since I was old enough to understand what music was uh, and influences. You know, we're all influenced in our lives and that kind of di- dictates where and how you progress through your, you know, your, your growing up. Uh, so I presume I've, I've, you know, magpied a lot of different things from different people, but I couldn't tell you who or where or when, but that makes you the distinctive character you are. Yeah. So I didn't realise I had a distinctive uh, voice. Um, we had Les McEwen in here a few weeks ago from the Bay City Rollers, second time I mentioned Bay City Rollers, and I asked him that question. I said, who do you admire? Who was the person who influenced you most when you were thinking about how to be the front man coming into the Bay City Rollers? And he said, Phil Lynott. Wow. No, I wouldn't have seen that coming. That's, no, that's I didn't. Incredible. And I wow. asked him for his favourite record. I said, what's your all-time favourite record? And he said, Whiskey in the Jar. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yeah, well, you floored me. I mean, yeah, yeah. The, the rollers used to do the same circuit as Tear Gas, uh, you know, the Alex Harvey band, and Stumble and and uh, Salvation and all of those guys. So they they were a, a touring band, you know, uh, long before they became famous. Just when the tartan started appearing on the bottom of their jeans, yeah. they'd still been out there cutting their teeth playing live. So uh, so yeah, uh, I'm I'm quite surprised at that. Yeah, I was surprised too. But uh, you know, he he was very clear about it, and he knew all of Phil Linnett's work and he was really, really into Thin Lizzy. So I thought, given you played in the band, I had to mention that. Now, you you wrote lots of songs with uh, Phil, and in fact, you co-wrote his big solo hit, Yellow Pearl. How did that come about? Uh, because when I when I, I got the phone call from Philip, I was in the studio putting the finishing touches to the first Visage album, which had Fate Degree on it, because uh, I was producing the record. And I got a phone call uh, from his management saying, Phil's going to call you in a minute. He's in Arkansas on tour. So I pick up the phone and it's Phil and he says, uh, you know, Gary's out the band, Gary Moore. Um, he hasn't turned up for a couple of shows. We're on tour with Journey. Can you come out and finish the tour? Now, why he would ask me to do it? Because I'm not a fast, twiddly-diddly guitar player. And um, I've got no idea, but I didn't question it. I just said, yes, of course. I'd never been to America. I went home from the studio that night uh, to find a pile of cassettes and a set list and a plane ticket and an itinerary. And all I did, because it was two o'clock in the morning, was repack my case 
I look at the itinerary, which said there's a car coming to get you. I took my ghetto blaster, because this is 1979, I think. We all had one of those then, yes. Yeah, yeah. well, they didn't have any portable things then. It was a great big ghetto blaster and a pair of headphones. Right. And, I, and I went to the airport thinking I'll learn all the songs on the way over on the plane. And, of course, they flew me out in Concord. Uh, and I, <laughs> I, I got there completely unprepared. I, had, I, I knew three songs. Uh, so I spent the first night in America ever uh, in a hotel room with Scott Gorham and learning all the harmony guitar parts. And then I was on stage in front of, you know, 20 or 30,000 people in Nashville. So it was a baptism by fire. So I did that initially, knowing that I was part of Ultravox, knowing that I wasn't going for a, a gig in Thin Lizzy. I wasn't, I wasn't interested in doing that. My heart was with Ultravox. And when Philip started looking for a permanent guitar player, he brought me back in again to do a segue to kind of bring in synthesizers because he was listening to what I was listening to at the time. I was introducing him to the world of electronics uh, and he was quite influenced by it. So he brought me in playing keyboards while he tried other guitar players. And during the sound checks, we used to jam what became Yellow Pearl. Paul Robinson on Private Lives. Midge, we're talking about Ultravox. You're in the band now with Billy Curry, with Chris Cross and Warren Cam. And that band were very influential, as well as being successful. I think a lot of people were looking at what you were doing in Ultravox. I think they probably were. Um, I, I think there was a lot of curiosity as to why I would join a band like uh, like Ultravox. But now that you've explained that I'd already had a synthesizer and uh, the influences that I was having in my idea of incorporating synths with uh, traditional rock instruments, Ultravox were the perfect band. Um, you know, I, I had been through the pop thing and I and I wasn't I wasn't looking for success. You know, I suppose, uh, you know, Visage kind of brought that to a certain degree. I wasn't looking for commercial success. I was looking for something else. I was looking for some interesting music. I was looking maybe for a bit of credibility. I don't know. So I, I, we had no intention of writing you know, three-minute pop songs. Um, and, of course, we didn't. You know, you listen to the Vienna album, and it's quite dark, and it's ominous, and it's experimental. And that, to me, was infinitely more interesting than doing Top of the Pops. Um, although, when Top of the Pops came along, you don't turn it down, you know. But that, that wasn't the intention. The intention was to write uh, interesting pieces of music and see where you could take this uh, collaboration of, of uh, you know, rock and electronic instruments. So that Vienna album is very, very important. I mean, how was the, the writing style? How did you and the other members of the band write the songs and agree which songs would go on the album? Well, I think we did it all uh, together. Uh, I don't remember anyone coming in with a song saying, this is what I've got, and then playing an entire track, and then we all contributed to it. Uh, we, we would write in a rehearsal room uh, with the very limited equipment we, we had, um, so, you know, Billy would come in with a piano riff or I'd come in with a guitar riff or Warren would come in with a drum beat. Um, and then you get the exceptions where you create something there and then uh, just by jamming. So you throw ideas around and you get around in circles. And, and we have these this multitude of cassette tapes of hearing the, the, the infancy of some things that have become, you know, hugely successful records. And you can hear them grow over the hours that you keep manipulating and changing and, and twisting these things. Um, uh, and then you get something like Vienna itself, where uh, the song is equally split between all four of us, because it wouldn't be Vienna without that drum 
part. And it wouldn't be Vienna without that synthesized bass, dig 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 dig, you know. And it wouldn't be Vienna without the piano part and Billy's violin. And it certainly wouldn't be Vienna without the the vocals and the um, the melody. So it was a combination, an absolute combination of a bunch of people coming together with a new refreshed energy. And what came out came out in you know a few weeks writing and three weeks recording, recorded and mixed in three weeks. Wow. And uh, and of course. Uh, you'd never repeat that. Well, the record company must love you. My goodness me. Talk about cost efficiency. That must be a record. But you weren't designing a hit album, but you had a hit album. And of course, Vienna itself, the title song, was number two for four weeks and became the biggest selling single of the year. It did. Yeah. Um, You know, I think it was a time when, you know, everything was possible still in the charts. Uh, Musically, you had diverse things i won't even mention what was number one because it was the antithesis of what we were doing yeah we don't want to uh, mention that no no definitely no, not. we don't want to mention that no but it was a time when the charts were very uh, you know extremely varied but something like vienna still had an opportunity to be played on the radio i'm not sure it would be the same today uh, so a lot of luck was involved. You know, you put out a piece of music that you believe in. Uh, we fought the record company who wanted to edit it down because it was far too long. And they finally gave in and we put it out in its entirety. And it kind of got there. Once it got played on the radio, it just resonated with people. You can't design that. You can't create that. All you can do is make what you think is interesting and hope that someone else gets it. Everyone knows the song. Not everyone knows what Vienna is about. Well, you know, there's been many stories about it. Uh, and I can't, I can't speak for the rest of the band, but I can tell you what I wrote the lyrics about. I'd never been to Vienna. I had read about it and I'd seen about it. And I knew it was, you know, a cultural centre of Europe and or it had been in its day. And I just liked the idea of this decaying elegance. And I liked the idea that, um, you know, when you go off on holiday and uh, you leave your daily grind behind, you're in a different mindset. So this fantasy idea that you go there and you meet someone and you have a, a passionate, wonderful time and you vow that that will carry on when you get back home. And it doesn't. Just like you know, two minutes after you know, landing at Gatwick or Luton or, or Heathrow, uh, you know, your holiday is gone. It's finished. It's just a, it's a very vague memory, a distant memory. And that's what I kind of wrote the lyrics about, the idea that you, you vow that this will happen and you haven't got it. It's gone. And all you've got left is that vague memory, the old Vienna. And I think we can all associate with that uh, also, not just holidays, of course. You know, things are, are transient, aren't they? Of course they are, absolutely. And, and we all feel those things and we all experience those things. So there was nothing particularly dark or arty about it. It was quite basic. It was a human, uh, human story. So you went on, had a second album, you did a live album, and then you left and uh, went for a solo career. Why, why did you decide to go out on your own, Midge? I didn't, really. Um, oh, okay. I had already dabbled in solo stuff. I uh, had a, a hit with uh, a, a cover of uh, Walker Brothers tune, No Regrets, mm. uh, while I was still in Ultravox. Um, what happened was uh, Band-Aid, um, and the whole Band-Aid project, Band-Aid through Live Aid to... You know, doing uh, you know touring with my first solo record, all of that stuff um, took me away from Ultravox for two years. And things change. You know, you leave your partner for two years and then come back in expecting it all to be sweetness and light and pick up from where you left off. 
it's not. It's like snakes and ladders. You walk away and all of a sudden you're right at the bottom of the snake again and you've got to try and rebuild something. And when I got back with Ultravox, you know, we had all changed, you know, not just me. You know, I had experienced touring and working with other musicians. Um, you know, I had experienced life outside of Ultravox. And it just didn't work. The last album was a bit of a bit of a mishmash. It was a bit of a confused mess. And maybe had we, you know, dug our heels in and seen it through, we would have found our mojo again. But at the time, it just seemed like that was it. It was done. It was time to move on and do something else. You're listening to Podcast Radio. I, I had uh, I had recorded the, the solo album in a break. Uh, you know, we Ultravox were like hamsters in a wheel. We we wrote, we recorded, we toured, and we finished touring. We'd go in and write again and record and tour, and and it was just this this constant thing. And we decided to take six months uh, apart. And in that six months, I recorded, I wrote, and recorded a solo album. So I I I didn't even tell the record label I was doing it. Oh, really? Uh, I just it's presented them with this finished thing and said I don't know what to do with this. And they put out if I was, and it was a number one. It's 1984, Mitch, and Bob Geldof calls you. This is the start of Band-Aid. So what happened on that first conversation with Bob? Uh, the first conversation was on telephone. Uh, he'd been speaking to Paula, his then girlfriend, um, uh, who was co-hosting the Tube music programme in Newcastle. Uh, I, uh, he was speaking to Paula and, and she handed the phone to me and said he wants to speak to you. And I'd known Bob for quite a while. And he said, look, I've just seen this footage. I want to do something. Uh, the rats are finished. Um, and we're not big enough to do it on our own. Uh, will you help? And I hadn't seen the footage, of course, and I didn't know what he was talking about. So we decided to meet up a couple of days later when I got back to London. We met up. The first conversation was bizarre because it took us two hours to to realise that, you know, we're fit for nothing. We were trying to we were trying to come up with ideas of how to generate some form of income. And two idiots talking to each other, you know, finally the moment, you know, came to us and Penny dropped it. All we're fit to do is write a song and make a record. And then the idea grew from there. Once we decided we couldn't just cover a Christmas song because 50% of the money generated from any Christmas, any song, any record uh, goes to the writers. We had to write something and then donate the royalties uh, to the cause. So, you know, the idea from that just grew into whoever Bob bumped into. I went home and started working on the song. By the time I got home, Bob had already bumped into Gary Kemp and bumped into Simon Labon. There's two of the biggest bands in the UK at the time. So you've got Spandau so, Ballet and Duran Duran. We had two, the two of the biggest names at the time uh, already committed to doing something because they had seen the footage. Uh, and once you've got people like that on board, the rest of it all falls into place. So I just spent the next three or four days honing the song, putting it together, playing all the instruments on it, doing a guide vocal so that when we got to the one day that we had to record all the vocals, uh, Phil Collins' drums and mix the record, you know, I was prepared. We were ready to to go ahead and try and get this almost impossible task done. So you had this long list of artists, and I think when you and I last met, which was actually ironically in Vienna, you were telling this story, <laughs> that on the day of the recording, you weren't really quite sure who was going to show up. We had no idea who was going to show up because we hadn't spoken to an adult. We had, we'd spoken directly to the artists, and we're, we're not very clever people. You know, we don't write things down. We don't remember much. You know, we're too busy, you know, being flimsy and full of ourselves. Uh, so there's Bob and I standing outside, um, the studio in West London, uh, surrounded by cameras and microphones, and we hadn't a clue who was going to turn up. 
But they did. They all turned up, uh, including some that we we didn't know were coming. Who who turned up who you weren't expecting? Madeline. Madeline turned up. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it was it was kind of like all right, okay, just come in anyway, it's fine. <laughs> More the merrier. It was a party, um, so uh, so everyone turned up. But there was a moment when uh, you know I, I won't use the expletive, but Bob turned to me and said, "If it's just a boomtown rats and ultrabox were beat, you know." Right. So uh, and and luckily they, uh, they were all there. How uh, did you organise it though? Because I mean, you know, trying to manage that number of musicians, the egos involved, and getting people to sing the right lines. How on earth did you manage to coordinate all that? You know what? I can't remember. Um, uh, <laughs> it's just it's just how you did things. You you we 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 wouldn't take any nonsense. You know, there were, there were no egos. The egos had to be checked at the door, and you had to do what you were told. You had to shut up when you were supposed to shut up, and you had to do your part when you're supposed to do your part. And you've got to bear in mind that peer pressure is a wonderful thing. You know, uh, nobody wanted to stand in front of all of those other people who were all famous and in their own rights and were all talented in their own way. And you got up there and make an arse of, you know, singing the song. Mm. Uh, and bear in mind, again, nobody had heard the song when they turned up. It's not like today where you could just email it to someone or stick it on a, you know, on the internet. Yeah. None of that existed. So they turned up blind. With one knowing. day in total. You had to wrap it in one day. Yeah. yeah, and the whole thing had to be done. It had to yeah. be finished by 8 o'clock in the morning to get the master tapes to the pressing plants because they had to press vinyl. And that takes a while. So there were no, there was no time. There was no time to mess around. You know, I had to throw them all out the studio early evening once they'd done their vocals and Phil Collins had done his drums. Although they, they were having a great time and they wanted to stay, I had to throw them out because they were starting to get into party mode, and I had to finish mixing the record. So uh, out they went. You know, the poor souls, nowhere to go in the middle of. London, one of the most vibrant, exciting cities in the world. I love and that image, though, of Mitch, of you chucking all these mega stars out of the yeah, studio. I said, go and enjoy yourself. You know, <laughs> let me get on with the job. Well, you wanted a big impact and you wanted a big result and you got it. Obviously, a huge number one record and a record that continues to get played and is, is much loved. But it led to an even bigger project because then you were involved with Live Aid. It did. I mean, the first piece of advice we got from anyone uh, on doing this was from George Harrison, who had tried to do something similar with a concert for Bangladesh. And all the money was eaten up in overheads. And he said, look, get yourselves good accountants and surround yourself with people who are bona fide good business heads. Uh, so we put together the Band Aid Trust a body of people from the industry, you know, Harvey Goldsmith and, uh, you know, Lord Michael Grade now, you know, so a, a bunch of people who knew exactly what was going on, music business lawyers and stuff. And we, we spent the next six months uh, overseeing, uh, funding the immediate uh, goods that were, were needed, the immediate aid that was needed. And part of this process morphed into when immediate aid wasn't needed, moved into long term aid. And part of the long term aid was uh, we realised that in order for any of the aid agencies to get uh, goods uh, up country uh, in Ethiopia, you had to use a trucking company, one trucking company it was a cartel. And we wanted to break the cartel, but we didn't have the money to break a cartel. We wanted to put a fleet of trucks in and a fleet of drivers and a fleet of spares and let you know all the, all the aid agencies use this for free and then put the money they would normally spend on uh, the cartel uh, back into the system. So it sounded like a great idea, but we didn't have the money. And then the idea, Bob walked into one of these myriad of meetings uh, one day with a drawing of the earth on it with a knife and fork either side of it. 
and he said uh, he said this is this is my idea this is live aid and we talked about the possibility of doing two concerts uh, in sync across the Atlantic and poor old Harvey Goldsmith nearly had a heart attack because mm. you know long distance calls had to be booked at that time you know mobile phones had just appeared everything had to be done by telex uh, so trying to uh, negotiate and trying to deal with two completely separate concerts on different continents at that, uh, that period of time was an an eye on impossibility. But weirdly, we managed to pull it off. Midge-Year, with whom I spent a very happy two hours in Vienna's airport lounge when our flight was delayed. Honestly, a true story. Next to Glenn Matlock, who recently played the 100 Club here in London with former David Bowie guitarist, New Yorker Earl Slick. Let's talk about your early days. When you were growing up, what were you listening to? What sort of music were you exposed to? Um, well, the very first things I heard were, were um, the 78 records that my uncle gave me. It was like Jerry Lee Lewis and The Big Bopper and um, Elvis and... And a few other things in there, but but the records were these every thick shellac things, and we had an old radiogram that the pot needed cleaning. It was either too quiet or too loud. It was like, and then he do that, and then he put the records on. It was a bit like lighting a firework when you're four or five years old, because you thought it was going to come flying off and take your head off. So you go over to the other side of the room, but the records came in a thick cardboard sleeve with stitching. And years later on, you know, we'd had the swing in 60s, which I was obviously too young for. Well, it might not have been. I went down to Portobello Road and found in a record store, and I was flicking through the racks, and I found a record in a thick cardboard sleeve with stitching down it with like an Art Deco label on it. And because of what had happened in my youth, I bought it, no idea what it was, and it was the Faces album, Long player. That was a good choice then. Well it was and at that time I didn't realise that they were a spin-off. This was before they had a hit with Stave Me. I didn't realise that it was a spin-off from the Small Faces. So I kind of started looking into them and they really opened the door for me for lots of music. The Blues, you know, there's a big Bill Broomsy song on there. I did on that album there's a live version of Mr McCartney's song, Maybe I'm Amazed, which is fantastic. Well why are they doing that? Well it's a good song I suppose. And there's um, Losing You. I think that's on that album. Or it might be on a Rod Stewart album. But anyway, I investigated them. And they opened the door to all this stuff, you know, and taking the temptations more seriously and things like that. So when you're listening to all this stuff, Glenn, did you at that time think, well, maybe I might like to do this for a living myself? It inspired me to ask for a, a guitar for Christmas, which I got when I was 10. And that very guitar is in the hard rock in Piccadilly in the vault. And there's like a, a, and the vault opposite the Hard Rock, they got their merchandising shop in the other corner. And downstairs, it's an old bank vault, and they got a safe in the middle. And around the safe, they got Entwistle's bass, they got Les Paul's number two Les Paul, they got Jimi Hendrix's Flying V, they got that, and it's all arranged around a safe that looks like it's got it's the door blown off. And it's the guitar me mum and dad bought me when I was 10. And I was talking to the girl there, and she said it's the most popular item because when kids come down, they can identify with it more than that. Because they might well have the same sort of ambition. I mean, it's a great company to be in, too, amongst all those names you just mentioned. Yeah, they're very fortunate. So you've got your guitar, you're 10 years old, you're learning yourself or you had lessons? I, I had Bert Whedon's Play in a Day book, 
The classic Burweeden, right? The guitar, yeah, classic that Bobby Shafto. Drink to me only with thine eyes, I think. But that was a bit hard because it's got a, a G7 in it or something like that. Um, but I didn't get very far. And it, the, the steel strings are your little fingers, so I didn't pick it up properly for ages. But then when I was a bit older at school, maybe 12, 13, there was a mate of mine at school who was having guitar lessons and he'd learn an A chord and he'd show it to me. And then the week later he'd learn a D chord and he's shown me that. And it's funny enough, his name was Steve Jones, but it wasn't the same. Not the Steve Jones. Not the Steve Jones. Yeah. So we started kind of getting on like that. And what were you playing? Rock well, and roll I, covers or other things? I was still learning at that stage. And what I did find out at a very early age, if you have a go at playing the song, sometimes it's a bit too hard. And it sounds nothing like it, but you've got your own thing, which might actually become your own song. And that's how I, I, I kind of got into songwriting, I think. So let's, let's fast forward to the Pistols then. How did you first come across the guys uh, that got you into the Pistols? Because I ended up getting a job at Malcolm and Vivian Westwood's teddy bear shop down at King's Road. And it turned out, I didn't know it at the time, but there was something odd about it. And it, when I first went in there, it was like walking into my grand's sitting room and earlier on they had a jukebox in the end at first they had a radiogram and it might have even been the same brand that we used to which attracted me i said you need anybody to work there they did but i didn't know other than the fact there was something cool about the place it, it turned out to be the, the very epicenter of what was hip and cool on, in london on a saturday afternoon and that's where everybody came in stephen paul came in so they came they, into the shop and that's how you met well, them? Well, I used to come in to kind of nick things, basically, and it was my job to stop them, but they was always... Were you successful in stopping them uh, thieving stuff from the shop? Well... Some partly. Steve Jones is quite a wily character. So one day, at the end of our lives, we'll have to sort of sit there and toss up everything. Who got away with what and who got found out with stuff. That was that. But anyway, I overrode them talking. They had a fledgling band. Malcolm McLaren was always kind of... Um, jokingly entertained, oh, how's the band going, lads, you know? And Paul said, well, I don't know, Malcolm, well, you know, we're trying to take it seriously, but our bass player, who was Paul's sister's fiancé, Del, never turns up. And by that time, I got hold of a cheap bass, and I said, well, I play bass, and now here's the important thing. They said, you do? What bands do you like? I said, the faces. He went, and that's our favourite band too. So I went and had a little, this is a long time before John. You were in? I was in, yeah. Did you have any idea about the material then at that point? No, we were still learning to play. I, I was a little bit better than them, but don't tell them. I was probably a, a bit like my mate, the original Steve Jones. I was probably a week ahead with them, a week, maybe a month ahead of them in terms of technical capabilities, but they don't say a lot, really. Well, you were all learning. I guess you were all young. Yeah, we was, we was young, you know, 17, like that. And Malcolm McLaren, what was he like? I mean, what, what insight can you give to him? What was he like to work with? He was a very interesting character. He was about 10 years older than us. He'd been around, he'd been involved, this, that and the other. I used to work for him and I used to measure up people with teddy boy suits. And I would have, to, and I'd work there, you know, during a week by myself and I'd measure somebody up and I had to call them through to Mr. Green, the Jewish tailor in the East End. But Malcolm's address book wasn't in alphabetical order and he had to keep flicking through it. And the names that he had then, you know, IT, International Times, Caroline Kuhn, the people from Oz magazine, Yoko Ono, 
Her number was in the book? Yeah. Wow. I can't remember it. Um, yeah. So it, it, it was all a bit, the whole thing was a bit of an eye-opener. So when did you do your first performance then with the Pistols, either in the studio or as a gig? How did that the go? The first proper gig we did was at St Martin's Art College, which I actually organised. I'd gone and done a foundation course there. Was, I got into the degree in fine art painting, actually, but I never went because in the summer holidays, decided to take the band seriously. Went in on the first day, booked a show, and we did. And we opened up for a band called Bazooka Joe, and the bass player, the keyboard player, was Adam Ant. His name was Stuart Goddard then. So that was our first gig, and I booked another show. We played at Central School of Art. Um, and I booked the shows because Malcolm had no idea whatsoever how to go about it. But we had a bit of a ready-made crowd, you know, because some of those people would come in the shop, and some of the people would come in the shop, all pretty much out of the original 30-odd people. It's like Susie from the Banshees. There was a guy who used to drive him around in his GPO van with GPO painted out with Dulux, called William Brawl. It was Billy Idol, you know. Wow, there's some names. Yeah. So, and so what were you called the Sex Pistols at this point? Yes, and we was called the Sex Pistols from the day that I went in and booked the first show. And where did the name come from? Well, the, by that time, the, the shop was called Sex, and we were the Pistols from the Sex Shop. Ah, OK, very simple. Yeah. So that first gig then at the Art College, what did you do? What songs did you do? did Pretty Vacant. We did a song called No Feelings, I think. But we also did mainly covers. We might have done a song by the Small Faces called Understanding. We might have done No Fun. We probably would have got on to doing what you're going to do about it, where John changed the words to, instead of, I want you to know that I love you, baby, you want everybody to know that you're hating them. But I don't think we got that far, because there was a scrap, and John was kicking the PA around, and the band stopped us from playing. And the guy who was the leader of the band, have you ever seen the James Bond movie, um, Casino Royale? Yes. Well, when it came out with the new, well, the latest James Bond was in it, I was really taken with the graphics because they're all to do with cards and gambling. So much so that I thought it was great. I never really stayed till the end, and I stayed to the very end to see the credits who did it. And lo and behold, who did it? Danny Clymer, right? And then I saw something else with Danny Clymer, and he was talking about that gig that we did and why there was a scrap when they pulled the plugs on us. And it wasn't because they didn't like us, he reckoned. He said it was because John was kicking the PA around and they had it on higher purchase and they hadn't finished paying for it yet. So he was really worried about it. Will he get his money yeah. back and will he repossess the yeah. amp? Yeah, so there's always all these side stories to things in, in rock and roll. So plenty of sort of um, drama around yeah, the gig. Yeah, but it was grist to our mill. And also, when we were playing that thing and this scrap broke out, I'd invited this guy who was a social sector of Central College of Art, and I'd actually booked that gig first, but then it turned out they were the other way around. So this guy came down, and he had a big old-fashioned raccoon coat and a boater with a front turned up, you know, like something out of the Great Gatsby. And I was really worried he was going to pull the gig on us, the other one, but he thought it was really funny. And that guy is an old, old friend of mine called Al McDowell, and he was over here recently. He lives in Hollywood now. And... Um, I said, what are you doing? He, he said, I'm at Pinewood. I said, what are you doing here? And he was art director Star Wars 9. And he's the bloke who booked the first Sex Pistols thing. He didn't do it all the way through in the end because it was just before Carrie Fisher died and the, the script that they had all went... 
all these stars of the future you were hanging around well, with well, them. Well, yeah, so I'm proud of the punk scene. There's photographers, fashion designers. All these people come out of this little kind of pot of um, the, the, the hippest people in London at that time. From East London to the whole of London on Podcast Radio, we are East London Radio. Let's wind forward to record companies and the Sex Pistols were turned down by two major labels before you got to the, the album. What was the sort of the chronology of that? I mean, what, what was the well, story? I mean, the main thing we, we, we did was we signed to AMI. That was the main thing. We, we saw as the BBC of record companies and we could have signed to a little label. There wasn't that many around at the time, maybe Chiswick Records or somebody, but we wanted to... We wanted as many people to hear our, our music as possible. So you signed to EMI, who were the yeah, big guys, yeah. and then uh, yeah. what happened? Well, then we did the infamous Bill Grundy show. Steve drunk a bottle of Blue Nun, got a bit drunk. It kicked in halfway through the, the interview, and um, he swore. You have to explain Blue off. Nun is wine. If only people of a certain age will know what Blue Nun it's is. It's a very sweet German rice. It is, yes. So he was a bit drunk, and the Bill Grundy thing was a disaster, wasn't it, really? Well, it was for Bill Grundy. It wasn't for us. It launched us. There was a big furor race. Um, I remember as a kid watching it. I loved it. But, I mean, I guess it wasn't that good for... Um, well, I mean, the, ba- the band did well, I think. The band overall were OK out of it. Well, in a way, but it put the whole thing on a different footing. From when we did that show, Steve swore his head off on live TV, basically, and the only other person who'd said the F word before was kind of time on a late night chat show. So, we all kind of thought it was funny, but there was ramifications. But instead of being on the cover of the Melody Maker, which we had, we was then on the cover of all the national red top press, and we was the scourge of the nation. And it kind of launched the career that way, but it also kind of stopped the band from being a band when I was in it, which was like the early Who, you know, a band by the kids, for the kids. So, and then we embarked on the anarchy tour but we wasn't allowed to play anywhere and then we were sort of up against the right not right wing but I don't know po-faced powers that be you know who were trying to censor us and then it became a battle against censorship and well, there was the whole issue it's too, all been there? pretty documented everywhere now. Yeah, I think people there, have there was the whole issue too, wasn't there, about when the album came out, that uh, the police were actually threatening Virgin Records with obscenity if they displayed, never mind the bollocks, in the, in the window of the record shop. Yeah, but that was shot down by a guy who defended it. A guy called John Mortimer. John Mortimer. He was hired by Richard Branson. Who wrote Rumpole the Bailey. Rumpole the Bailey. But it was, uh, who happened to be a clergyman as well, and he said, yes. offered to turn up in court defending the pistols in his ecclesiastical costumes. <laughs> anyway, they won, the ca- won. won. they won the case, yeah. This, by now, I'd left the band by that time, so that, that's all a bit down. But let's go back to the album, because, I mean, you, 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 you contributed to the album in terms of a songwriter. Obviously, yep. you played bass on a number of songs. That album was a landmark. I mean, it was either loved or hated. I mean, there were people like Kurt Cobain who said it's one of his favourite albums of all time, and others were saying it's the worst thing ever made. Um, yeah, well, it was a polarising, but I think all good music is kind of polarising somehow. Um, but I think all music that stood the test of the time, you know, going back to talking about Jerry Lee Lewis or somebody like that, you put those records on, they just sound really vital. And, and, you know, and the technology has improved so much over the years, but they still sound just as good. I agree. I bought it and I've still got the vinyl. Yeah, well, you know, and the kinks, you know, you really got me or something like that. It doesn't matter if it's a bit scratchy kind of sound. It's something that comes across in, in the music. 
I think. Don't you think so? Well, the first single was Anarchy no. in the UK, wasn't it? That was the first single. So let's talk a bit about that. What was, what was it like when that became a hit? Everybody was looking for... It's like when you go and look for a pair of trousers. You don't necessarily know which ones you want to get until you see them. Everybody knew they needed a new pair of musical trousers and we just come along at the right time. That album, what was your part in the uh, recording and writing I, I, of that? I, 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 but writing, I, I, I've got 13 songs. Out 13 of the, songs? Out of the whole Sex Pistol catalogue. You know, some oh, so are co-write, some I wrote. I mean, I, to this day, say that Pretty Vacant's my song. I wrote the words to that. You know, some of the other ones, Steve wrote and blah, blah, blah. But the first three singles were down to me. But it's mainly as a writer, you know, because the band had moved on by them. And, and John Lydon and Johnny Rotten, I mean, what was sort of in his head? I mean, you worked with him. What, what, what was really going on? Who knows? Really? Yeah, who knows? I mean, he was charismatic, but he must have been difficult to work with? No, when we did writing, when we did writing, that's not very good English, when those songs were initially written, I thought we had a good working relationship. Um, but as soon as he got his boat race in the papers, he changed. That was what it was. He got profile, he got famous, I and then he changed. I think so, yeah. You know, and he became... Well, he became a lead singer, really. <laughs> yeah. And as many lead singers yeah, do, he yeah. took on all those traits. Uh, yeah, but with knobs on, yeah. With knobs on. Now, God Save the Queen was obviously the next single, and that was also, you know, extremely controversial, obviously. Uh, it was, yeah. But originally that song was called No Future. And, and again, you can't take the pistols out of the time where they came through, you know, the three-day week, power cuts, everybody on strike, practically a hugging parliament. And there was an air of despondency around. And I think, yeah, John wrote the lyrics to that. It's my kind of riff and tune. Um, and I think what John was trying to get across was there's no future. Not delighting in that fact, but unless you try and do something about it for yourself. Now, the lyrics of the song never changed, but it occurred to somebody at the record company that when the record came out, it was going to coincide with the Queen's Silver Jubilee. And since the first line of the song was always God Save the Queen, why don't we call it God Save the Queen? This is 1977, of course. Yeah, yeah. Although that song was written possibly at the end of 76. But a big, big... Uh, this was a hit, of course. This was a much bigger and, hit. And there's another demo knocking around. We did a demo with a guy called Mike Thorne, who was our junior A&R guy at EMI, who at that stage was trying to break in to become a record producer and became a successful one. He did Tainted Love by Soft Cell and worked with the Communards and Mink Deville and did the Live at the Roxy album. Just when you, as you look back on the Pistols now, what's your sort of overriding memory of it? I mean, how do you, do you, do you have rose tinted or do you think it was, a, you know, it was learning time? What was it? I think it had its moments mm. and it was a necessary, we were a necessary evil and we had a laugh and we had, there was tears, laughter, pathos and bathos involved in the whole thing. Right thing at the wrong time or the wrong thing at the right time. But you shook the whole business up. Somebody had to. Yeah. Next you formed the Rich Kids. Yeah. Which was... Um, yeah, I've always seen myself as a musician, a songwriter. People were interested in what I came up with next, and I thought, well, what am I going to be a sort of second division Mark II Sex Pistols? No, I deliberately picked a guy who 
who'd been known as a bit of a teeny bop idol, but I really liked his face, which was mid-year, and the, to try and put the cat amongst the pigeons, even the name of the band. The total Did you know Midge before? Because Midge was in Scotland, obviously, so I not kn- in London. I, I knew of him, and before John was in a band, Malcolm McLaren and Bernie Rhodes, who went, went on to manage The Clash, and they were a bit of a double act at one stage, went up to Scotland, and we were looking for a singer. And they, and everybody, but everybody had long hair and flares down then, and they went into a music shop to do something, to do with Steve Jones and Temperature. <laughs> you can work out. And they... But, Met this young kid, and this he young was in Slick, wasn't he? he was which was a teeny band, and he had a quiff. Yeah. No hair at all now. Like in, in 1975. Yeah. Well, I told him to be careful with those curling tongs. <laughs> but yeah, so we spoke briefly. But he said at the time, I spoke to him on. I called him up. They got his number. I called him up from Mountain Shop. Spoke to his mum, and she, she said, um, oh, "Who is it?" And I said, "Oh, you don't know my name's Glenn, but we got." Uh, Midge's number, you know, can I speak to him? And she shouted upstairs, she went, hey, wee Jimmy, there's somebody from London wants to speak to you. And so we spoke, and I explained what we was doing, and he said, well, thanks for the interest, but it looks like I'm going to do this thing, and it looks like it's going to take off, and it, it did, you know, they had a couple of big hits with Slick, they had a number one record. I, I think not go much on them, but they had good beginnings, you know, it was very much of that Martin Coulter kind of vibe thing, you know, sort of sub chinny chat rack record thing. But he was interesting and when I was getting the British kids together I was struggling to find the right singer and I remembered him and I said, I wonder what he's doing because they've been in gun burning. So I called him up, came down to London. Um, and it worked, I mean an unlikely partnership yeah, but a successful not one. In, not initially, but I, I think I I think and I think Midge will agree with this, I think I gave him a bit of a break because he was stuck in Glasgow at that stage and didn't quite know what to do. You well, know, we, talked to Mitch, we talked to Mitch last year and he said that. In fact, he said, you know, he didn't want to be the teeny bop thing. He realised it wouldn't last. He wanted to be recognised as a more serious musician and you gave him that. Yeah. Well, so he speaks fondly of you. Good. Yeah, and I, I like Mitch. I think he's a class, he's a class act. ELR on Podcast Radio. My thanks to Glenn Matlock and to Midgier before that, but no sign they're going to reform the rich kids. This has been the Private Lives podcast from East London Radio. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Paul Robinson. There'll be more Private Lives at the same time next week. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.